Hello and welcome back to the podcast series Engaging ESG. In this episode, we are going to be focusing on the retail and consumer industry. Joining me in conversation on telephone is Shriya Jagnadan. You might recognize Shriya as the host for PwC's technical accounting podcast, On the Top Shelf. On the Top Shelf is the podcast dedicated to accounting matters that are topical for the retail industry in South Africa. Welcome to the podcast, Shriya. Thanks, Kyla. I'm really looking forward to examining retail with a bit of a greener lens with you today. Really excited to be dialing in here from Cape Town. Shreya, do you think that matters linked to the environmental, societal and governance issues are relatively topical within your industry? Kyla, it's actually very topical. Although we commonly refer to ESG, other terms commonly used are corporate responsibility, sustainability, sustainable development, and so on. The building blocks can, however, be quite similar overall. Those building blocks of ESG are important. What are, in your view, the building blocks of ESG within the retail and consumer market space? Sure, Kyla. Good question. Although this is a podcast about reporting, I think ESG is so multifaceted, it would be good to have some high-level context. Firstly, we have the E, environmental. Commonly under this pillar, one of the things we think about are pollution and waste. This could include packaging and display material as well. So as a retailer, are you still primarily packaging customer goods into plastic bags? Or have you given customers the choice to bring in their own bags or to buy environmentally friendly alternatives? But what about the packaging of retailers' own no-name brand goods? Are they sustainably packaged? Also, under this environmental topic are issues regarding an organization's attitudes towards climate change and environmental opportunities. For example, are your distribution centers powered by renewable energy, or are you still carbon intensive? Those are some of the considerations in the environmental leg in a nutshell. Next, the social and governance side. Can you expand a bit more about the S and the G in ESG for the retail and consumer industry? Sure. The S in ESG stands for social. Here, a retailer might think about labor management and how they are sufficiently protecting the rights of their staff and leveraging social opportunities such as improving access to healthcare, finance, and equitable pay. In South Africa, the social aspect is arguably a very crucial element of ESG. The social side can transcend beyond an organization's employees and could also include upholding, for example, the Consumer Protection Act and caring for your consumer. This can extend further into community relations and how an organization leverages its charitable spend to uplift the society it is part of. Lastly, the G in ESG stands for governance. The building blocks of this part of the ESG acronym include corporate governance and ethical corporate behavior which is pretty much self-explanatory. Thanks for unpacking the building blocks of ESG for us, Do you think ESG can impact the value of a consumer business? Yes, absolutely, Kyla. Business in the consumer markets are exposed to a range of environmental and social issues, which could affect enterprise value. For example, the value chain begins at the raw material extraction and processing step. At this origin point, the value chain is exposed to climate change risk, as evidenced by the lack of availability of natural resources, for example. On the other hand, at the processing step, allegations of an opaque supply chain that entails, for example, poor employee working conditions could damage a retailer's ability to sell the products that form part of that unethical supply chain. Even digital issues, 
such as breaches of consumer data privacy, which is linked to the social element of ESG, could cause damage to the value chain by reducing consumer trust. All of these issues play out at different stages of the value chain, with some issues falling outside of a company's legal and financial boundary. Consumers expect brands to take responsibility for the entire value chain to the extent possible. Those are some interesting points. So the crux thus far is that ESG exposure exists throughout the value chain and has the ability to impact enterprise value. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes, that's correct. Accounting and reporting are the mechanisms by which companies report to their value. So I think this is a nice reflection point to turn our focus to reporting. What are your thoughts on the interplay between the ESG factors we just discussed and the financial reporting? Wow, Kyla, that is a very big question. But I think if we take a step back, accounting and reporting are essentially, like you alluded to, the language of business. Demand for ESG progress thus far within the retail and consumer space has ultimately been rooted in changing consumer behavior. Let me give you an example. Within the PwC Global Consumer Insights Survey in 2021, more than half of the respondents indicated that they intentionally buy items with eco-friendly packaging or less packaging. A retailer that begins to change its suppliers to be more in tune with this trend would see that shift in costs and revenues. Inherently, these estimates could impact the IAS 36 impairment calculation. The evolutions in the retailer's gross margin and its forecast models for impairment should then be updated accordingly to express the shift in the business. IS36 seems like a good starting point, especially because of the nature of the impairment test requiring management to make certain forecasts. What are some examples of cases where we could begin to see depressed forecasts here? Kyla, I think a good example of depressed forecasts in future prob- profitability could, once again, be linked to consumer buying patterns. Now, let's think about cash flow forecasts for a second. Cash flow forecasts could include an expected decline in demand for products and services that are not environmentally friendly, which could result in decreasing revenues. Demand may decline if an entity needs to increase its selling prices to address increased input costs as well. Increased input costs could be linked to scarcity of a specific product, given how climate change has influenced agricultural behaviours and outputs. Or, demand may decline due to consumer perception and preference for alternative products or services with lower environmental impact. And I think a good example of this concept is meat. In most developed countries, the production and consumption of animal protein-based foods particularly red meat, need to be significantly reduced and partially replaced with plants and plant-based protein alternatives. The global plant-based meat alternative market is growing rapidly at a compound annual growth rate of about 15.8% and is poised to reach around $35.4 billion by 2027. As someone that personally follows a plant-based diet myself, seeing food and beverage giants really lean into the plant-based alternatives and reflecting these changes in consumer preferences makes me personally quite happy. But, back to our accounting angle, I digress. The crux is that the assumptions or business decisions need to align with the underlying financial reporting judgments and assumptions. The two need to talk to each other. 
for example, where companies publicly assert a best estimate about the impact of the Paris Agreement on a company, and a standard then requires a best estimate approach to be used in measurement, the company would then need to ensure consistency between the estimates within the boundaries of existing IFRS standards. So consistency, Kyla, is very key. Wow, Shia, that is a lot of food for thought. <laughs> so to wrap up the impairment topic, under IS36, what are the other areas entities should watch out for? Sure, Kyla. Becky, maybe taking a few steps back, a non-financial asset is impaired if its carrying amount exceeds its recoverable amount. Recoverable amount is the higher of value in use and fair value less cost of disposal. So some basics here when it comes to IAS 36. I think something for listeners to bear in mind when it comes to this impairment standard is that value in use contains restrictions which do not allow so-called improvements to an asset to be taken into account. Although such improvements may then be taken into account by market participants and incorporated into a fair value-less cost of disposal calculation, so there's a distinction between the two. So when thinking about future projections when it comes to value in use, it's important to just bear that in mind. When it comes to value in use, the costs and benefits of future expenditure that is intended to improve or enhance the assets of a business should not be taken into account within the cash flow forecasts because future cash flows are estimated for assets in their current condition. But that's a lot of theory. Let's let's take an example, Kyla. Let's say, for example, a cash generating unit known as a CGU is being tested for impairment in 2022. Let's say management has approved a major investment plan to increase the CGU's revenue and decrease its running costs to be more aligned to ESG elements that we've chatted about now. The work on this investment plan, let's say, will only begin in 2024. For the purposes of the impairment review, that impairment test that's been done in 2022, the future expenditure and the related benefits should be excluded from the calculation of value in use, so the CGU is tested for impairment in its present form and condition. Those are some useful reminders about IS36, which is a standard that covers the impairments of non-financial assets. Continuing on the theme of non-financial assets, does anything come to mind when considering the effect of ESG on IS16, which is the standard for property, plants and equipment? Good question. Let me explain this by discussing an example. So, a company might have made a promise towards reducing its carbon footprint by, let's say, 2030. This might necessitate the replacement of some of its asset base with equipment that is a bit more energy efficient or even powered by renewable sources. As a result, the useful economic lives of some existing assets will need to be shortened, or in some cases, the assets will need to be written off in their entirety. The organization might also revise downwards the residual value of its existing assets in order to reflect the the fact that the equipment that uses fossil fuels probably has a lower resale value on disposal. Even if the estimated amounts are not material today, the organization might voluntarily include a narrative explanation of this change in estimates in their note disclosures for property, plants and equipment. This then demonstrates how the organization has aligned its own financial statement assumptions with its broader environmental strategy. Okay, so it's about carefully performing that annual assessment of the useful lives of your PPE in order to ensure we're accurately bringing through our business judgments into the accounting. Exactly, Kyla. It all begins with the entity's business plan. Once an entity has determined its strategic direction, 
hopefully incorporating those ESG aspects into that strategy, the accounting must then follow as an inevitable concomitant of that plan. How do you see those plans connect with an entity's judgments with regards to IFRS 16, the lease standard? So IFRS 16 is quite topical for retailers because retail entities tend to lease their store premises. I can think of about two key areas when it comes to IFRS 16 to bear in mind. The first is the lease term and the second are leasehold improvements. I'm interested to hear a bit more about how an entity sustainability plans interact with a lease term. Let's unpack that a bit more. Sure, Kyla. The first thing to remember is that the lease term is the non-cancellable period of a lease together with any optional periods that lessee is reasonably certain to use. Periods covered by an option to extend the lease term are included in the lease term if the lessee is reasonably certain to exercise that option. The same rationale also applies to termination options. Periods covered by a termination option are included in the lease term if the lessee is reasonably certain not to exercise the option. Now that's a bit of basics when it comes to IFRS 16. Let's think a bit more about the ESG aspects. An entity might decide to move their leases to buildings that are a bit more environmentally friendly. If that's the case, a lessee might need to consider whether or not a reassessment of the lease term is appropriate. I wonder then, if your second point about leasehold improvement comes into play when an entity does not want to move, but instead resolves just to improve its current situation. Exactly. An entity might make enhancements or significant upgrades to its leased premises to make it more environmentally friendly. It is more likely that a lessee will exercise an extension option in their lease if a lessee makes significant investments to improve the leased assets or to even tailor it for special needs. If these upgrades are voluntary, that is, if a lease doesn't specifically require a lessee to make an improvement, the improvement should not be considered to be an asset of the lessor and will likely belong to a lessee. You could then potentially capitalize those costs under IAS 16 depending on their nature. In the process of doing those upgrades, like moving over from the grid to fully solar, I would think an entity should watch out for whether or not they have entered into any new lease agreements. I fully agree with that. There's the potential that an entity entering into a solar purchase agreement or a PPA, for example, could actually find themselves entering into an agreement that is in the scope of the leasing standard. An entity entering into these types of arrangements should carefully assess the nature of the contract. We've covered a lot in today's podcast. We've started with the building blocks of ESG when it comes to the retail and consumer industry. We then extended the discussion into consumer trends and how it impacts an entity's impairment calculations. We then touched on the useful life of assets before wrapping up with some watch out for areas in leases. Thank you for all your insights, Ria. No problem. I'm so glad to have been here, Kyla. If our listeners would like to listen into a bit more technical accounting content, you can join me on The Top Shelf, a PwC technical accounting podcast that is dedicated specifically to the retail and consumer industry. Thanks, Kyla. This podcast is brought to you by PwC. All rights reserved. PwC refers to the South African member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com forward slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.